Hi, you're listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We provide relevant resources to new and aspiring independent school leaders to help you grow, succeed at work, and have a positive impact on the lives of students. I'm Michael. And I'm Matt. On this podcast, we have insightful conversations with leaders from across all areas of independent school education. Independent school hiring season has started. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Lawrence Alexander, the founding director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Carney Sando and Associates, an independent school hiring firm. You can learn more about Carney Sando at carneysando.com. The role of director of diversity, equity, and inclusion is increasingly recognized as a key senior leadership role within independent schools. Michael was able to have a conversation with Lawrence to learn what school leaders need to be thinking about prior to hiring, during the hiring process, and after hiring to fully support the work of an incoming director of DEI. Here is Michael's conversation with Lawrence Alexander about hiring a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Lawrence, thank you so much for being willing to be on our podcast today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'd love to start by just asking you to share your journey within education and what you currently are doing. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, Lawrence Alexander, what's always important to me is my identity as a first-generation college student uh, from Jersey City, New Jersey. I attended uh, all-boys school in Jersey City, New Jersey, St. Peter's Prep before going on to two state schools for a bachelor's and a master's, Kane University and Montclair State, uh, respectively. Like most folks who end up in our space, uh, I never intended to. I was actually just trying to get my graduate degree and uh, did a graduate assistantship in residential life and spent some time in higher education before in 2010, moving over to my first role um, on the 6 through 12 side as a college counselor at the Young Women's Leadership School of Astoria in Queens, New York. And indeed, as it is with most things, those young girls taught me everything I know. And after leaving the Young Women's Leadership School of Astoria in 2014, I moved on um, and started a career in the independent school world. And so I worked for some time at the Ross School on the East End of Long Island uh, as a director of college counseling. And then in 2016, I moved on to the White Mountain School up in a little town called Bethlehem in Northern New Hampshire and spent time there as a director of college counseling and a director of equity and inclusion. And it now brings me to my work uh, as the founding director of equity and inclusion with Carney Sando and Associates based in Boston, where I have the unique opportunity to get back, give back, and work with uh, those constituencies uh, from earlier in my career, the great folks in college admissions and my colleagues at independent schools, really resting the conversations meaningfully about both what the position of the director of equity and inclusion is and what the practice is about. And frankly, it's the practice that sustains the position. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And clearly you have an immense amount of expertise and it's uh, great to have you today. Uh, Independent schools are increasingly beginning to try to demonstrate their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion through creating senior leadership roles, such as director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so today we'd love for you to share your experience and expertise on how heads and boards can prepare 
uh, ahead of the position, hire for the position, and continually work to support that position. Um, I'd love if we could start talking about what do heads need to be thinking about prior to hiring for a role such as director of diversity, equity, and inclusion in order to make sure it's successful? And uh, what are some things that need to be addressed or accomplished first? I think you have to wrestle with the question, do you want your director of equity and inclusion to be an architect or a firefighter? In too many cases, it's the latter. There are fires of racial tension, issues in uh, an anemia, in cultural competency and fluency, a disproportion in the racial and ethnic diversity amongst uh, students at our independent schools and the adults who educate them. The fires are raging at these schools. And instead of dealing with those fires before the hire, they hire this person to be the firefighter. I think it's instructive to boards and heads of schools who wanna do this work well, that if you want your director of equity and inclusion to be successful, you need to hire them to be an architect, not a firefighter. If you do indeed have fires on campus and which one doesn't, you need to put those out before you hire this person. I love that. And ideally, I, I would I'd love to believe that most people are able to tell if they have fires versus uh, need an, you know, versus just need an architect. Are there some key ways that uh, a head can tell if, if they are in the fire situation? Yeah, no, that's absolutely a great question. I think that you'll be able to tell um, what the boundaries are and the growth edges uh, of the work pretty clearly. And I think it flows from this question. Does your community support the work of equity and inclusion or do they simply tolerate it? Oh, that's good. Because there's a, there, there's a, there's a big difference. There are many schools who will tolerate it, allow it as long as it doesn't, quote unquote, get in the way. Um, but does a school really support it and not just have it as a thumb on the hand, but really believe that it's the marrow and the bones? Equity and inclusion isn't extra work. It's elemental work. It is not sheetrock. It's bedrock. And for schools who truly want to do this well, they need to assess in their community whether they support this work or they simply tolerate it. That's great. Hopefully that's clarifying for heads and hopefully they're able to make that distinction and and uh, definitely take care of that work prior to looking for a, for a director of director diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you talk for a moment about prior to hiring uh, for that role? What, what do the heads need to be thinking about in terms of support from the board? Yeah, I think there are two things that the board is going to need to be able to demonstrate in terms of their commitment, um, and that's fidelity and funding. Um, fidelity. Uh, will the board support the community's efforts in this work, and most importantly, back up the head of school. Within the school community, all of the employees report to the head of school, but the, the head of school reports to the board. Right. And so does the board essentially have the head of schools back? The fact is, your chief inclusion officer at an independent school must be the head of school. And they can only be the chief inclusion officer if they have the support of the board. So that fidelity means will you back the head of school to parents and to alums and to donors? The second piece is funding. You know, we do a really good job, especially in the advent of social media, of putting our mouths everywhere. Um, we do a lot of talking, uh, but will you put your money and time 
and I would argue that time is probably a more precious commodity, but will you put your time and money where your mission is? From the board, you need fidelity and funding. Uh, in terms of funding, one ahead is, you know, thinking about this kind of work, what level of funding and what types of things should they be considering funding when they're uh, approaching their board? Yeah, and I think we'll get to this in a bit, but when you talk about uh, creating this position, if this person is a senior level administrator, then you need to pay them like a senior level administrator. I think that creating the director of equity and inclusion position sounds great until you have to pay them. Right, right. But it is, it is, it is simply virtue signaling if they are a senior level leader in title only. And so the first part is making sure that from a fiduciary perspective, from an infrastructure perspective, this person is set up like the rest of their team is. Now, I'm certainly open to funding structures with regard to budget. Uh, whether this person has to have a budget, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. As long as in the spirit of support, the school has thought through what supports from a financial perspective this person needs. But I think if we're starting at the most elemental level, if you're calling this person a senior level leader, then you need to pay them just like you pay everyone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you talked about, uh, used the firefighter uh, imagery. What role could a climate study play in uh, assessing, uh, well, the climate of, an, of a school prior to uh, hiring for this position? And what kind of actions could a head take based on the results of a climate study? Really good question. I can't remember the last doctor's appointment that I went to, and they didn't start by taking my temperature. You need to get the vitals of a campus. You need to take the temperature. There's nothing worse than solving the wrong problem. And starting with hiring a director of equity and inclusion without understanding where your school is and the unique time and life of your community is a misstep. At our firm, with Carney Sandon Associates, I've actually helped a number of schools who are in the nascent stages of doing this work by doing campus assessments. And what they find from their community uh, is particularly instructive to shaping not only the qualities desired and who this person can be, uh, meaning the Director of Equity and Inclusion, it also informs the community about the kind of support roles they need to play. I would strongly advocate that an assessment of the community and climate, a temperature taking, if you will, is the place to start before you get to hiring a director of equity and inclusion. That makes complete sense. Um, when, and, and maybe we'll get to this later, but when someone gets the results um, and let's say that they're not what they were hoping for in terms of climate, um, what can a head do to sort of pr to prep for uh, you know, taking care of that before hiring for the role so that, you know, a new incoming director can be the most successful that they can. Yeah, I would certainly say if you think about the founding and ascendancy of independent schools, I really don't believe that anything on a climate assessment would shock a head of school. Um, it's yeah. no surprise, nor is it a secret that independent schools were not created for diversity. In fact, they were created um, for the total antithesis. So you're not going to be surprised, one shouldn't be surprised, if your climate assessment reports 
disparities in feelings of belongingness between your uh, majority students and your underrepresented students. One shouldn't be surprised if the community is seen uh, or viewed as warm and welcoming to one set of students and not to the other. Um, you shouldn't be surprised if there's a paucity and an anemia in the diversity amongst faculty and staff at independent schools. And so I really can't think about the issues that would come from a climate assessment that would shock a head. So I guess I would encourage right. heads in this moment, do the work because you're not going to be surprised by what you find, but you will be instructed. And I think the other benefit of doing this climate assessment is that your community will have the opportunity to opine, to share their voice, and to shape the work that occurs at their school. So I, I don't see there being anything unusually surprising that comes to those climate assessments. But what you can find is a blueprint. And that blueprint helps the architect that you hire to become your director of equity and inclusion. That makes a lot of sense. And the idea of, you know, probably not being surprised, but definitely being instructed, I think is a, a great a great way to think about that. Uh, and I think you're right. I think a lot of people are going to end up being in, heavily instructed by uh, a climate study. It seems like a very useful tool. So uh, prior to even creating a job description, there are a number of different conceptualizations of a, a DEI director that I've seen. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about different conceptualizations of the role and maybe some strengths and weaknesses of them. And then if, if there's an ideal model that you believe in, and if there are best practices around that model? It's a really good question. If I were drawing the ultimate Venn diagram of what the work of equity and inclusion looks like at a school, for a moment without even the director or the leader in place, you have equity and inclusion in the center, and then kind of concentric on the fringes, you have teaching and learning, you have enrollment management, you have community life, you have hiring and training, and you have development. At a healthy school, that practice should already be in place. Every one of those areas, circles, if you will, that I've talked about should be thinking about the ways in which the work of equity and inclusion ought be elemental to the work that they do. If that's the case, then when you hire, for a director of equity and inclusion, they become that person in the middle who is not responsible for getting the ball rolling, but responsible for keeping the ball rolling. That, that seems like a healthy approach. Sadly, most director of equity and inclusion positions are not seen of in that Venn diagram way. They are kind of what we've uh, referred to in the field as the fatal 5F model. And that is the uh, food, fun, festival, swags, and fashion model of, of diversity work. They want the student-facing, programmatic, performative, make sure you get Black History Month done right, make sure you do MLK Day right. If you can get to it, um, do Women's History Month right. They, they really want something that is... Uh, form, but not substance. And so I, I, I do think it's important to hold up an organizational mirror about what you want. And if what you want is that fatal 5F model, 
have it, call it something else, but don't call it a director of equity and inclusion. Call it multicultural programming, call it something else. But what it isn't is what we are starting to realize in the field is needed. And it's that person to keep that ball rolling, keeping equity and inclusion central to everything we do at our school. Gotcha. I love the Venn diagram illustration. I almost want to draw that up and stick it in the show notes. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to look at that and think about it. I wonder, I mean, I, I guess you talked about the firefighting versus architect, but let's say that a school gets themselves in, in the position of recognizing that they haven't been doing this work well. They do want to move forward and they do want to start the right way with a, with a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion who's really doing the work but they recognize that the equity and inclusion is not where it's supposed to be in that Venn diagram. What steps can someone take when they recognize there's a problem and they need to, they, they want to get to a point where they can be in a position to hire for a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion and, be, and have it be successful? Uh, are there uh, people that can come alongside them? Are there consultancies? Uh, how do people go through the work of educating themselves and getting themselves to that healthy place? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic uh, point to raise. I actually do a lot of this work currently with a few independent schools that I contract with. You know, I, I would certainly say, and I think it, as I remember it, when I was at White Mountain, we had um, plans to really deepen the work of equity and inclusion in our community. And yet we realized that we needed a whole year of preparation before we did that work. And so I would almost say to schools, if they're endeavoring the hiring of this person in a real deep dig into the soil to really think strategically, um, before you plant, you have to till. And so it's instructive then for everyone in the community to do their own unique work. Having worked uh, at a school on the east end of Long Island and then in Northern New England, where in both instances, I was the only um, person of color when I was in Northern New Hampshire. And when I was on the East End of Long Island, I was one of two uh, people of color. What it frankly means, and it is going to be true at most independent schools, it means that white people need to do their work when it comes to racism, understanding white privilege, and understanding identity. Because if you haven't had those critical conversations about race, identity, difference, um, being straight, being cisgender, thinking about gender identity, thinking about sexual orientation. If your community hasn't had those conversations prior to this person being hired, you can only imagine there'll be an enemy of state in short order. Yeah. But each yeah. community has their own unique work to do. None of it is easy, but it's all necessary. And probably the, the climate study we talked about a few minutes ago would probably help in, in giving some guidance towards figuring out um, maybe the nature of the work. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, you know, I agree. And, you know, let me, let me also stop here and make sure that folks understand when we talk about equity and inclusion and our diverse global family, we're not just talking about race. You know, I am an African-American, heterosexual, cisgender Christian male. That means that as many areas in my intersectional identity that I may be underrepresented or historically oppressed, I also represent a number of planes of privilege. And I've got my own blind spots and I have my own allyship and the places where I need to be an upstander. The fact is we all do. And so this work is a real collective work. And that's why, to your point, 
This climate assessment is important because each community has their own unique challenges and their own issues that members of those communities need to own. The challenges are different, but the solutions are the same. We, we talked a, a little bit about the senior level position. Um, and if, if people you know, want to have a senior, senior level position to make sure they can fund for it. Um, but I wanted to ask, is it best practice, practice to have that as a senior level position? It seems to me that it is. Um, but would that be a position that reports directly to the head? Are there people who you would recommend who report directly to uh, a, a DEI director? Um, are there people who are laterally connected? Could you talk a little bit about maybe what an ideal org chart for that role would look like? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, and it's only been my experience, that the director of equity and inclusion, if they are a senior level administrator, they should report directly to the head of school. Having served in that role myself, I know how important it is to not have your story retold by a third party to the head of school. Right. Because yeah. most independent schools have not done a lot of work in the space of equity and inclusion. In the early stages, the director of equity and inclusion is delivering hard messages and is often pitted because of white fragility, because of male fragility, because of all these planes of privilege and fragility they're, posi uh, they're positioned a bit adversarially for most of their colleagues. The last thing this person can afford is to have their story told by a third party. So it's been my professional experience and opinion that that person needs to report directly to the head of school. Relative to your question about uh, an org chart, you know, I think, it, I think it's interesting and I've heard both ends of the conversation. You know, for some folks, it's, well, listen, at my school, support looks like if I'm a senior level administrator, we need to have an entire office of equity and inclusion. And maybe there's a, a program coordinator and then there's an administrative assistant. And certain schools have that structure and, 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 and more power to them. I, I think there could be value in that because that work is distributed directly amongst an office of people. I think if there's a downside to that, um, you could contribute further to the idea of being siloed in the work. A school could say, you have an office, you have a team. Therefore, you don't need to be in the admissions meetings. You don't need to be in the department meetings academically. You don't need to be in the community life meetings, et cetera. I frankly am of the opinion that rather than an org chart, a flow chart is a better way to work. Oh, that's great. This yeah. person should be a partner and an ally and a colleague to every constituency on campus. If I had to make a recommendation, uh, I do think the administrative support is, is real. Um, I, I would absolutely recommend flow chart over org chart. That's great. I love that. Uh, one of the reasons I asked this question is because I see uh, in work I've done with different schools, um, not with a, specifically the role of director of equity and inclusion, but um, when someone reports directly to the head of school, if there's not a clear understanding of what that work they do is supposed to then do, um, you know, people can get in discussions about who has authority to delegate what, even though someone could have a senior role. So the idea of, you know, the flowchart actually is, is really great. I, I love that. I think that that could help uh, solve a lot of those problems about, you know, who, who has authority over academics or student life or, or you know, whatever 
aspect of, of the school programming. Yeah, and the fact is when equity and inclusion work is done at its best, it truly is volitional. If I could be in a position to mandate the work of equity and inclusion at a school, I wouldn't want it. Because then the work people are doing is a matter of compliance and right. obligation. Yeah. When it when it when it's best, it's it's volitional and folks are opting in. So we've spoken uh, a bit about what to do prior to hiring. What, what questions have I missed? What else needs to be thought about uh, prior to hiring before we start talking about the actual hiring process? Yeah, I think uh, communities really need to look at their racial and ethnic demography because for many institutions, the hiring of this director of equity and inclusion is frankly one of the ways, though it's not always the case, that this person could be the only senior level leader of color or in the LGBTQIA community or a woman. There are high instances that this hire could be the first in their racial, ethnic, or sexual orientation group uh, or gender group on the entire campus that then gives them an extra job they never asked for in being uh, that model minority and being that model person of an uh, intersectional identity. And so I think the community really needs to take a long look at not only what the racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual orientation uh, representation is amongst their student community and faculty and administrative community, but also to look around that senior level uh, staff and see what kind of environment their new colleague is coming into. I think the other part that's been huge in our work, and it used to be relegated to heads, and now folks are seeing how important it is with directors of equity and inclusion, and that is the work of transition. You know, it's one thing to recruit. It's another thing to hire. But thinking through the transition for a director of equity and inclusion, particularly when this person is the first in that role, is gonna be critical to their success. We talk with schools particularly about focusing in on those first 100 days, being extremely intentional about um, supporting that person. As is experienced by many directors of equity and inclusion and persons who are from underrepresented backgrounds, there's an interesting phenomena that doesn't happen to most white, male, straight, cisgender colleagues, and that is this. For many candidates from underrepresented backgrounds and those who take on this work of equity and inclusion, the interview continues after they've been hired. Oh, wow. Yeah. Having having that support of their community, the folks who have uh, supported them in the search process, the head of school who's hired them, perhaps the board that's been involved, the same support it took to bring them to campus is going to be the support it takes to keep them on campus. So starting to shift gears into thinking about, um, you know, actually hiring for the position. So we talked about prior to the position, where does somebody start with a job description and and duties for the, for the position? If this is the first time that someone's hiring for this role, uh, where does a head go to get information on sort of best practices for how to, how to structure a position like this? Yeah, I think there are a couple of answers. Number one, uh, at Carney Sando and Associates, this is the work that we do. And we have hundreds of job descriptions for directors of equity and inclusion. And so we're happy to be a resource. 
And yet, I would say the first stop is having this conversation at the board level and at the school level. Because when you go back to that Venn diagram analogy that I made, a community needs to really wrestle with how much agency this person has. We talk a lot about agency in the college admissions process with students making a differentiation between grit and agency. Grit means uh, that I work really hard. Um, Agency means I have the authority to enact change. And so a hiring manager, a community really needs to think about believing this person is going to work really hard, but what kind of agency will they really have to make change? And what that looks like at a K-12 school where you have three divisions may be different than what it looks like in a high school because now this person needs to work with academic departments and other administrative departments. So I think more than the innards and fine details of the job description, a school community really needs to think about the level of agency that this person has. And even at schools who have had the position for years, they have a job description, but that person has no agency. Mm. So we can certainly be a support when folks are ready to type it up. But when they need to draw it up, communities need to spend some real time in conversation with their board and with their senior leadership. Yeah, that's great. And it's really great to know that that resource exists through Carney Sando too. I, lo- I love the conversation about agency though. And that's a really, that's a good framework to which to think about that. Appreciate you sharing that. Another aspect I think that can be maybe anxiety producing for some, for some independent school leaders is trying to think of how to structure an interview process. Uh, can we talk about once someone's on campus, how do we give them a transparent view of culture um, and, and a clear idea of how far along the faculty are in terms of DEA? I work and, and also just what, what should a, a good interview process, this kind of work be where we can be transparent with the candidate, but also, you know, be interviewing them to see what kind of, what kind of work they'll be able to do at our school. There is a truth that independent schools need to first face about the director of equity and inclusion position. And that is they have, we have a corrupted cultural inheritance. Because independent schools were not founded on inclusion, they weren't founded with the position of director of equity and inclusion. Many people who are now in these roles come into them through that corrupted cultural inheritance. I know it was the way I got my position. The way it happens is you're usually a woman, a person of color, someone from the LGBTQIA community or an upstanding white person who speaks up in too many meetings and raises the fact that we need to do this work and they tag this title onto your current job. I wasn't hired as a director of equity and inclusion. I was hired as the director of college counseling. But when I show up as a person of color in a state that's 96% white at a school where I'm the only faculty of color and my daughter is a freshman, this work becomes personal to me. And so I inherit a job without any extra pay and a lot of extra responsibility and off I go. Our schools didn't start with the intention to create this position because they didn't start with the intention to have diversity at their schools. Therefore, we can't even approach this position in an evaluative perspective the way that we do other independent school positions. And let's be honest, we're going to want to know 
How long has this person been in this position full time? Okay, we well, have to reckon with the fact that most of these positions are not full time positions. <laughs> um, right, people are going right. to want to know what other independent schools has this person worked at in this position? Oh, yeah. Most independent schools don't have this position. And right. so there's almost this independent school uh, template. We put on the interview process wanting to know what other uh, experience they have in this role, what other full-time experience they have in this role, maybe what other prestigious or selective independent and boarding schools people have done this at. And you have to recognize this isn't a position that is prolific because it's a position that most people don't want. And so we need to uncouple some of that independent school vetting from this position and recognize that there are going to be a number of great candidates who come from within our profession. And now, because a lot of us have toiled through making it look good, there are a lot of folks who are outside the profession who won't have independent school experience in equity and inclusion until we give it to them. So for me, that's, that's the piece of framing. Um, I think when you get to interviewing for the position, to your point about transparency, I think when you get to faculty, that's where it goes to folks doing their work. And while some of it is cultural and some of it is identity, I think it's important to note that until the work of equity and inclusion is centered in the classroom, it'll never work. Many schools tolerate, air quotes, this work because it doesn't mess with their curriculum. And yet, many students from underrepresented backgrounds, our international students as well, suffer trauma in the classroom because the academy doesn't include contributors who look like them. And it's not a matter of adding flavor <laughs> um, or add-ons to the curriculum. It's a matter of teaching the full story. And so it's going to be important before you bring this person onto campus to have a great conversation about the inclusive classroom and curriculum with faculty. In that regard, that is also a lot of work I'm doing with faculty on cultural fluency and inclusive classroom practices. I just finished a training uh, with the New Hampton School up in New Hampshire on this exact topic. You know, I'm going to display my own ignorance here, but, uh, you know, I, I've always sort of thought about this role as being, you know, schools get to a point where they want to address these issues. And so they hire for this role to help them do that work. But it sounds like you're kind of flipping that on its head and saying in order for this role to be successful, you really have to do uh, all this work up front in order for someone to come in and, and even have something to work with. Is, is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we just came out of the holidays for some folks and part of some people's tradition is making New Year's resolutions. And, you know, there's nothing like a good uh, New Year's resolution in gym membership. And hiring a director of equity and inclusion is like hiring a personal trainer. The idea sounds good. Right. So they put you on the treadmill. Yeah. And so there are many schools who think that this position sounds good. And then they get on the treadmill. And they have buyer's remorse. You can cancel a membership. It's hard to cancel a position. Right. Let's talk for a minute about once someone's hired. You, you said earlier that at Carney Sando, you focus on the first 100 days. Um, let's talk a little bit about what to do once someone's hired to support them. So what do heads need to be thinking about uh, in terms of 
continued support and supporting you know the first hundred days, but also just in general uh, in the long run, what what do heads need to be thinking about? Yeah, there are four areas. Um, as I thought about this, one is wellness. The second is professional development. The third is mentorship, and the fourth is executive coaching. Wellness. I think it's important to know that doing the work of equity and inclusion, particularly for practitioners who share a vulnerable and underrepresented identity within the community, is traumatic because the professional is personal. Right. When I worked at the White Mountain School, I was not only a director of equity and inclusion. I was also a man of color and a husband and a parent. And I did all of that while being a person of color. These weren't just conversations for me. This was me. It's easier to take off your business card and role and title in any other work, but equity and inclusion is uniquely personal. So thinking about this person's wellness is important and I'll name it as courageously as I mean to with as much candor as I say it, particularly at independent schools, if you're a person of color and I can say it for myself, it gets tiring being black for white people. Mm. And, and what that means is we get tired of being the sole racial representative. We get tired of answering all the questions about Martin Luther King and Black History Month and slavery and Black Lives Matter and all the other issues that you would not sit down and center a white person, a straight person, or a male in the middle of campus and ask them. People of color are centered and asked to be experts on all things their people in ways in which their white colleagues are not. So in that wellness pillar, a head of school is going to really need to look into the eyes of the challenge of wellness for this person and not blink. The second piece is professional development. And I really don't just mean money. Again, when you look around the office and the community, there are many people who do admissions. There are many people who do teaching and learning. You can kind of go on, so on and so forth. Most times that director of equity and inclusion is looking in the mirror at themselves in the community at least. So it's gonna be very important to help them develop a village and a, an in-group. And that in-group is gonna be outside the community. So not just supporting with money, but supporting in time and logistics to allow that person to develop a sense of best practices, to breathe with practitioners who are going through some of the same issues just outside of the campus. Um, I think the mentorship, again, is important, not just for the professional part, But a lot of what equity and inclusion work is about is about disposition management. You're managing a lot of uh, fragility in a community. You're managing a lot of nascent understanding about the work of equity and inclusion. You need some folks who have traveled this midnight road in a rainstorm to help you know that it's going to be okay. The fourth piece that I think is important is the executive coaching. Um, We do this a lot for heads of school. We do this a lot um, for deans of admission on the higher ed side to think about someone coming alongside this director of equity and inclusion for perhaps the first year of their work to help them with actually doing more than surviving in this role, which is an accomplishment in the first year, but helping to lead their organizational change and development 
is going to be important. So those are the four things I think about when I think about supporting this person um, when they're hired. Is there a resource you'd suggest in terms of where to go to find qualified executive coaches to support this kind of work? Yeah. And while I believe um, in my heart of hearts that uh, we have a lot of uh, colleagues and peers who do this work at the firm, uh, we have an executive coaching practice where we support heads of school, deans of admission, and um, has newly grown as a opportunity for us, directors of equity and inclusion. I currently coach a couple of myself. And that, I think that's a resource that our listeners will definitely be interested in. Because like you said, it sounds really important, especially for the first year. Um, Absolutely. So, when it comes to uh, work with faculty, uh, when the director begins working with faculty, how can a head support the work of the director when things start to get heated or tensions start to rise, uh, when faculty members begin to feel uncomfortable, which I feel like is inevitable when people uh, begin doing this kind of work? What does a head need to be thinking about and strategizing ahead of time for when that happens? Yeah, I think it, it's important to be said that the chief inclusion officer in the school community is the head of school. If that is truly the case and truly the commitment as faculty and as administrators come to the head of school about the uh, pain (laughs) associated with growing, right? This chief inclusion officer will help them in the way that I remember from when I coached sports, there's a difference between um, pain and an injury. I used to always have a coach tell me, if you're feeling pain, get back in the game. If you're injured, let's take you out. Oh, that's good. None of the work of equity and inclusion will injure you. Might cause you some pain. But as long as it's pain and not an injury, get back in the game. And so I think this, the strongest recommendation and encouragement, and I also know appreciation um, I can ask four from heads of school is to really feel your feet in your shoes and your spine in your back when it comes to supporting the work of equity and inclusion, because you're going to need to spend some well um, cached social, cultural, and political capital to support this work. But in the same way that you use it in other areas, you're going to need to be prepared to spend it to support the work of equity and inclusion. So we talked uh, about a few things with respect to supporting the role once they're there. What else, what else needs to be talked about? What, else, what other things need to be considered in terms of continued support? I think that a community is most supportive of equity and inclusion when they see it as much as, uh, they, when they see it as a non-negotiable in the way that they see other things as a non-negotiable. For a school that prides itself in its sports, the athletics budget is never an issue because it's important, it's resonant, and it makes a difference in the community. For school communities who pride themselves on their academic program and academic excellence, there's no price that's too high to support their academic program. When a school community sees the work of equity and inclusion as elemental to their survival and to their mission, they'll support it that way. As the racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity in our country shifts, the member groups who used to afford and support independent schools are declining. And the groups who will come into the affluence to attend independent schools will raise a great question. Why? (laughs) 
and of equity and inclusion and supporting an inclusive and diverse student community isn't at the top of that list, then your new demographic, which can, for, can afford independent schools and can afford boarding schools, won't. Right. Not because they don't have the money, but because they don't feel the support. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, thank you for sharing your, your expertise with us today. There are three things that I ask everyone at the end of uh, the end of our podcast, and they are, what should people be reading? What should people be listening to? And how can we connect with you? Uh, how can listeners connect with you further? There are a couple of books that I think are helpful in this space uh, for different reasons, but I'll list them. On understanding whiteness as a construct and the ways in which people of color um, experience microaggressions. There's a book by Austin Channing Brown. She's a wonderful author, a woman of color, and the book is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Uh, there's a book that I use for my implicit bias trainings in higher education by a gentleman named Tony Jack called The Privileged Poor um, on the ways in which selective institutions are failing students from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, I am a fan of the work of Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility. Um, I do love Debbie Irving's work with Waking Up White. Tanahasi Coates has, uh, I think, his seminal work, um, Between the World and Me. Michael Eric Dyson penned a book, uh, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. And I think Tim Wise does a great job. Um, his book, White Like Me, is a great first stop for folks um, in the work. In terms of things folks should be listening to, I think Chimamanda Adichie's Danger of a Single Story, which is both a TED Talk and available on YouTube, is great. And in terms of podcasts, I really do enjoy listening to Third Space by Jen Court. And how folks can get in contact with me, they can certainly go to our firm's website, www.carneysando.com, or you can email me directly. That's lawrence.alexander at carneysando.com. That's L-A-W. R-E-N-C-E dot Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R at CarneySando.com. Michael, this has been a phenomenal time in getting to know you and to talk about the work. This is a great podcast you have here. I would like to commend you on bringing this great platform to bear. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to share with us today. And I'm going to go ahead and put links to all the resources you just mentioned in the show notes. And so people will have access to those. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We hope that today's conversation helped you grow as an independent school leader. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Episodes of this podcast are released bi-weekly. You can follow and engage with Matt McGee and Michael Amusio on LinkedIn.